Hello, uh, this is Drew, pastor here at Hope Community Church in Columbia Heights, and we had a little technical difficulty with our uh, recording of our sermon for our Sunday service, and so this is actually a re-recording of that sermon. We are in this series, Made for God. It's a series where we have been looking at uh, what it looks like to put our identities in Christ, what it looks like to see specifically gender and sex uh, through that lens. And so um, I'm excited to continue this. This is really kind of our last sermon in the series, but it's all built together to get here. So this isn't just a sermon that happens, um, but it's a sermon that's part of a series of actually six other sermons that we have been walking through. We've also been doing studies in our small groups and lots of resources available. We'll kind of look at that right now. We um, have been looking at what our identity and God's lovely authority is, God's creation and it's good and then he created originally really good, very good. We're going to see that today. What the good news in the midst of brokenness, we looked then specifically if we lay that foundation of God's authority, that he's good and he created good things, that then there's good news even in the midst of our brokenness, then what does it look like to think about singleness and dating and marriage and lust and masturbation and same-sex attraction and today gender dysphoria? And so we want to look at all those, but in the context of that there is good news in all things, right? The gospel uh, screams that to us. It means good news. And so what does that look like? There are some uh, resources available um, on our website, hopecc.com slash madeforgod. We have a page. We've just collected things from lots of people we've talked to, things we've been reading that might help um, you continue this discussion. This is a thing that we want people to continue thinking about, uh, working through, like all things, um, it's not a thing that just like overnight happens and you go, oh, I figured it all out. Um, but it's a thing we want you to continue to look at. So there's resources on there. There's small group studies. There's actually a, a parenting uh, discussion coming up here in November. And um, uh, also just there's there's people available to discuss more and, and think more with you. I know some of our small groups have shared how they've really been blessed by just having people to share in a safe place about these things. Um, in life. And so encourage you to do that. A couple resources specifically I'm going to highlight here. Um, as this week we're looking at transgender um, and gender dysphoria. Uh, th- here's just three books that I found helpful. They give a good kind of overarching uh, gospel perspective on this. Uh, also you get to hear some kind of stories and some just good information in there. Uh, One's Transgender by Vaughn Roberts, Embodied by Preston Sprinkle, and What God Has to Say About Our Bodies by Sam Alberry. I encourage you to check all those out. Those will also be in our weekly update. Um, links to those, or, or at least those in there. Um, so, uh, I encourage you to just really, honestly, just really continue to, to think and wrestle through these things. Um, this is one of the great things about the Church of, of Christ, is that we uh, get to gather and help each other process these. So, um, I want to first start here by just introducing you to someone. Her name is Heather Scribba. Um, I got a picture of her here. Um, Heather uh, is someone who has experienced gender dysphoria, and I want you to hear her story. We're actually going to continue to hear her story here as we go this morning. Um, Heather grew up in a home. Her parents were eventually divorced when she was young. She remembers uh, that not being a very healthy um, or safe home always. She remembers being uh, specifically being not girly enough for her dad. She said she remembers her dad saying, I always wanted a girly girl, 
and you're not that. She felt more comfortable in pants and a t-shirt, she said. She w was often told maybe you're more like, uh, you're acting like a boy. She didn't seem to fit in the normal, the, the gender norms of a girl. She grew up and felt attracted to women, uh, not boys, and, and that started causing a tension, kind of a, a deep, I think she used the word deep dissatisfaction within her. She began to feel this tension in her body and desired that something should change. She felt this real deep disconnect with her biological female body. And she said that in, in turn kind of with herself. Who, who is she? What is she? Um, something wasn't right. And that was affirmed in her when she went off to college and she found other people to confirm that feeling. She said, I wasn't really sure what to do. And I was seeking the Lord and things in that. But then I went, went off to college and people said, no, no, it's probably because you're not, you don't identify as a, as a girl, but, but as a man. So was a, she was learning what these things were, gender dysphoria and transgenderism and what a transgender man or woman was, which we're going we're gonna to get to some of those terms in a minute, just so we're clear on those. She felt like something wasn't right, so she started to change. She said something, she didn't feel like something was right, so she changed her name to Jamie. She took hormones to change her voice so it would be lower, and she started to dress differently, like um, what culturally a man would dress like. She still didn't feel like something was right, though. Something was off. So she decided to take this deep dissatisfaction and try to make it satisfying, um, even by going to the, to the level of top surgery. This was something she shares is, is kind of the ultimate step for a transgender man, is to say, I was born uh, biologically female, but I'm going to actually change, surgically change my body. So hopefully then I'll feel like who I think I am, and then everything will be okay. She speaks of this deep dissatisfaction in her soul, that she sought help from Christians in her family, and often felt disgust and dismissal from it. She looked for someone to affirm her feelings and help her find comfort in this deep discomfort, this brokenness. We're going to see more of her story, see how that plays out. And I share this story because I want us to hear of a real person uh, in real life, in real time, because in all of these, uh, uh, mo all these things in our sermon series here that we've been going through, we never want to just think of these as issues that we're going to solve, we're going to figure out. These are people, Preston Sprinkles, as people who are to be loved. I think it's really important. And, and Heather is a person to be loved. And she's very much not alone. There's many people that are feeling the same thing at some level, just discomfort, brokenness, like they're just not, there's something off. Terms like, uh, I don't feel at home in my body is something that has become more common. I think it's something many people just didn't know what to say before, but I think there is this feeling, right? And we actually know this, um, just as people have surveyed the population, that more and more people are sharing this and, um, and so what do we do with this? What does scripture say about this? Uh, and what does it look like to be people who love Jesus and follow him? And in truth and love, we, we uh, work this out in our lives. So in a recent survey, um, it said that 83% of LGBTQ people grew up in the church and felt that they were pushed out of the church. They weren't welcome there. That there was a lack of love and that people... Uh, chose theology over love. 
whether or not you agree with that or, or that even was true, that they felt unloved and there wasn't a place for them. 91% of non-Christians in a recent survey identified as one of the top things uh, in identifying a church. They were asked, these are non-Christians, people not in a church, 91% of them, most of them, they said, what do you think of when you think of church? And one of the things they said was, that's the place where people hate gay people, hate transgender people. Um, and it's helpful for us to know and hear that, right, as a church. This is the view people have. This is, I'm sure, some of the tension and weightiness we felt even in this sermon series. It says 34, as we just talk about trans uh, people, 34% of trans people have attempted suicide. 64 feel bullied consistently. 73% feel harassed in public fairly consistently, normally. Like three quarters of those people feel like in public they're harassed. And this one kills me. 21% of trans people avoid going out in public due to fear. Some of, the, some of them shared um, it's because they actually felt unsafe. That's 21% is a lot of people who feel unsafe going out in public. I, just sharing this so we understand um, who these real people are. These are like family members and friends and coworkers, right? People in our communities, people we're called to love uh, and also called to call to a truth. So what does that mean? So let me just share a few terms so that some of these already you might be like, okay, he said sex and then gender, he said transgender, he said gen, transgender man, woman, what do those things mean? Let's just, just so you hear these and if nothing else, these might help you Love someone well in order to connect to someone, in order to care for someone, move towards someone, um, instead of just dismissing, like, I'm not, whatever, what does that term mean? But, but let's understand these, um, whether or not you agree with them. Just want you to know, this is culturally what these terms are and what the culture around us means by these terms, so we can at least be on the same page. First, cisgender or cis, it's someone whose gender is the same as the sex they're assigned at birth. Um, and so, like, for me, I'd say I'm I'm cisgender because I'm male. I was born assigned male, and I identify as male. Just so we know that term, right? Gender dysphoria is used to describe when a person experiences discomfort or distress because of a mismatch between their assigned sex at birth and their gender identity. So here's where we get the, the, uh, the line between sex and gender. This is one that's uh, commonly asked. Sex is what you were assigned at birth. You were born, and they said you're a boy or girl. And gender is what you then identify as. And that's where culturally we see like this spectrum of, of things. Gender identity is what the person's internal sense of their own gender is. This is like a psychological sense. This is what you feel, whether it's male, female, or something else. That spectrum continues to grow. Gender reassignment usually means to undergo some sort of medical intervention. In uh, Heather's story... She actually went through a medical uh, a surgery in order to change. This also could mean things like a pronoun change, a name change, dressing differently. Some kind of change that uh, they feel moves them towards what they're identified. Intersex is a term to describe a person who may have biological attributes of both sexes, male and female. Um, and, uh, yeah, we'll keep moving here. Non-binary is an umbrella term for a person who does not identify as male or female. So non-binary, they don't believe that they are a male or a female. Uh, they just aren't, aren't identifying as either. Queer in the past has been seen as a derogatory term. So queer has been used as a derogatory term. I remember this term being used when I was in high school, college, 
as not a, not a helpful term, but it says now some have actually reclaimed it in the LGBTQ community to just identify people who don't fit traditional categories. But also, it just in my even talking to people, some people also don't want to keep using it. They don't like what's connected to it. So this is a term that could be, depending on the person, um, if they're okay or not using it. Trans or transgender is just an umbrella term. It's the big term to describe people whose gender is not the same as or does not sit comfortably with the sex they're assigned at birth. So transgender is just the term for you are assigned a male or female gender at birth and, and you don't feel like you fit that. So then a transgender man is someone who was assigned female at birth but now identifies as a man. They are they, they identify now as a man, but they were assigned female at birth. And then a transgender woman is someone who uh, was assigned male, a man at birth, but now identifies as a woman. That's a lot of terms. That's a lot of things to think about. And partially I wanted to list all these terms and kind of uh, lay this out almost as if we had a table here and I could lay all these things out in front of us. And you might feel a sense of like, how do I figure this out? Even if you're a person who's feeling these things, this dysphoria, or if you're just a person around this, you're hearing, what is this? It feels a bit confusing. It could feel uncertain. It feels maybe ever-changing. Um, and one of the people that I've talked to about this, I've talked to some people who are experiencing gender dysphoria. They've said, I often feel like a tangled mess. If you have this picture of these, these uh, wires and cables all tangled up, if you pull them out of a box and they're like all tangled and there's like a power strip and there's another power strip and there's different cords and cables and there's like a keyboard in there, how that get in there. And all these things wound up together. There's this tangled mess. It feels messy. There feels deep tension. Someone described me uh, as their experience is they just want to untangle all of that so they can feel like it's untangled. They can feel at home. They can feel comfort. They can feel a deep satisfaction, where right now they feel a deep tension within them. So just, we, this is what we want to lay this out so we could say, hey, now we know kind of, okay, this is, this is what people are feeling. This is what real people around us are, are experiencing daily. So like, so what do we do with that? Well, I think it's important for us, as we have in all this, to look to scripture and say, hey, what does scripture say about this? And there actually is really good news in this. And this is a topic that I think we can uh, really uh, understand and actually come alongside someone in because, because of the gospel and our understanding of how the world works. Um, and there is great hope in it. And so that's my hope today. We're going to look at some passages um, and we're going to look at what is it, hopefully at the end, just, so what do I do? How do I frame uh, life when thinking about this? So in this series, we keep doing the same thing over and over again. Someone just mentioned that to me the other week. They said, oh, it seems like every week the answer is the same. The gospel, let's look back at how God made things, how it broke, and how Jesus fixes it. And that's our hope today. So as we've been through many times, we just go back to Genesis. We look at when God created everything and it was good, very good and right, how was it? Which gives us a picture, right, of what it's supposed to be like before things are broken. So that's what we're going to look at now. As we learn how God made mankind, how mankind responds, uh, is specifically with their bodies and their gender 
Uh, what do we do with dysphoria or tension or brokenness or just not feeling at home in our bodies? So we're going to look at Genesis 1, 27. Uh, if you want to open, look at your Bibles, uh, these things are also uh, on the screen in the slides. All right, so we want to remember a few things here. Let me first read this passage, this Genesis 1, 27. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Let's just, we're going to take a second just to walk through this passage. This is the moment in creation where God has been creating everything, right? Out of nothingness. He took disorder, darkness, and he brought light and order, and he made all things. Our good creator makes things, and he keeps saying, they're good, they're good, they're good. And then he says, now it's time to make people, mankind. So a few things that are really important, I think. Right away, right out of the gate, verse 26 says, there's a God... And it says, let us make mankind in our image. This is one of those moments where we get to see the Trinity in Scripture. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, us. Let us. So we have one God, right? And three persons in this Trinity. Let us make God in our image. So God, a God of relationship. Actually built into God is this rela- is relational, is, is relationship. He's going to make mankind in that image. So this image, first we see, before we're seeing what how God makes genders before we see what we're supposed to do as people. He just says, I'm going to make him in my image, a picture of me. And right before he even makes that, we hear God is relational. And so we know that's one of the images. People are not made to be alone. People are made to be in relationship because that relationship even shares the image of God, shows off the image of God. And so we see relational people being made. We see Living statues, we've talked about, of God. These, these uh, people who are made, the life of God is breathed into them and they point people to God in the way they look and they live. And that they may rule over, care for, steward. Just like God cares for, rules over, stewards the things around them. So God then, we see, right, this relational God, he's about to make these people to do this, so then he does. In verse 27, so God creates Mankind in his image, in the image of God, he created them. So he creates people, and not just a person, he creates two people. Because there's something about two people, right? It's relational, and also he creates them in a certain way. He doesn't. It doesn't just say he makes people, but in verse 27 it says, uh, the kind of people, in fact, he, it identifies the genders of the people. It says God creates two genders of image bearers. He creates a male and he creates a female. Now we know he creates those, and then later we get to hear how he brings them together, and he encourages them in verse 28, and also we're going to see in Genesis 2, to be fruitful, to multiply, to grow, to care for things. So there's this image of these two that come together, and we looked even earlier in earlier sermons about how this term actually even, what God's looking for was this uh, this. Uh, he creates Adam, and then he creates Eve, and he creates this opposite but the same person. And so he creates these two image bearers. They're not the same, but they come together. They're this complement of each other. 
that creates this picture of God's beauty. And so he makes these two, male and a female, brings them together in order to multiply and grow. So it shows this image that we learn later in Ephesians 5 even, we hear that God brings his people together, back to God, right? His bride and Christ come together and become one, and that brings life to them. And so he says, hey, you, a male and a female are going to come together and it's going to bring life to them. There isn't here, I think it's helpful to stop, there isn't here a specific definitions of what's masculine and feminine. This is the thing that we need to be careful about. This is where we can get ourselves in trouble, right? That men are just tough lumberjacks, they're emotionless, uh, and they just get stuff done, and women are gentle and quiet and plan tea parties. Um, in fact, it, recently I was, uh, I heard a story of someone said when they were young, they went to a, uh, uh, like a conference and people were sharing about, uh, they gave them lists of what a man and a woman is, and they had a passage next to all the lists. So they were supposed to read the list and then read the passages to see what God's called men and women to. They said a lot of them are really helpful, uh, but one of them on the female list just said dainty, and then there was no scripture next to it. And so someone asked, like, hey, we don't, we don't have the scripture for dainty. They said, well, there's no passage that says women are to be dainty. Um, it's not even like a word I guess we really use now anyway. Um, and they said, oh, well, I don't know if there is. We just think that's a thing that women should be. So this thing, maybe you've experienced this. There's categories, and it's, some, it's just cultural, too, where you live and when you live, that certain things identify a person as a man and a woman. And I think these sometimes are what we hold up. These are what we spend our time uh, making sure people look like or act like um, instead of maybe just gospel people. And what does it look like to be born a man and then the gospel changed me and flew out of me. And my, as a new creation, I look like a gospel man because I am a man who has had the gospel influence. I this is, and this is also an area that a lot of people's stories, as I talk to people with gender dysphoria, shared very similar things. And often in the church, they shared uh, their whole, their lives, people just said, hey, you're not girly enough. You're not manly enough. You're acting like a girl right now. You're acting like a boy right now. And that, that actually fed some, for some of them, they went, oh, well, maybe then I am a man, or maybe I am a girl, even though I was born the opposite gender. And so... I think this is a thing that we, we should be careful of. I, again, we want to encourage people to cling to Jesus and allow Jesus to change and the Holy Spirit to change people and see what that looks like um, instead of just giving a list of things. So, sorry, we're going to get back. But I think that's really important here because we don't see a list here. And in Scripture, we do see things that men and women are called to, but I think those have been added on to a lot. But we do see, just clearly here, there are two genders they're both in the image of God. They're both called to bear his image, to be fruitful and increase, to grow things. And they're also called to come together. That, that could be marriage. That could just be the church looks like people who are men and women coming together, the body of Christ, different giftings and different genders coming together to show off this good God. So our genders, our biological sex is given to us by God. Here God gives these people, Adam and Eve, a male or a female sex when they're born. He, the creator, has given it to them. And then out of that, they live their life. The words here are given to describe a man and woman. Um, 
And so I, that's, I think that's really important. That's something we can't just go, well, that was a long time ago, or that's not really what it meant. I, God does give those two, and he, and he does use those to show a picture. Now, we also see what this looks like, not just as he creates two genders, but that he also really honors and sees our body as important. And so in Genesis 1, 27, uh, we see that. And then in Genesis 2, 7, we hear what it looks like when God creates man. So Genesis 2 then kind of gives us this other angle of the of the story of creation and really zooms in on what did that moment look like. And so in Genesis 2, 7, it says, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The man became living being. You see what it looks like? So God forms at, forms a body, right? So one of the questions we're thinking about is what does it mean? What does a gender look like? Are there lots of them? Or did God just, it looks like God created a man and a woman, created male and female, and out of those there's different, uh, that, that's going to look different in different people. But but there is a gender, right? There's two of them. And then, then what does it look like then to with our bodies? Because another discussion in this discussion gender dysphoria is that maybe our bodies aren't important. This is a view we've looked at in other uh, sermons in this series of, of this view that our bodies aren't really worth anything. In fact, sometimes our bodies are worth are worse. And then just our spirit or our soul, quote unquote, or our essence, like that's what's really, that's who we really are. And our bodies are like this kind of broken thing that um, isn't important. And then and we just use it for pleasure or for whatever, and eventually we cast it off and it dies, right? We see this in 1 Corinthians um, being talked about. We've talked about that before, and I think that's really important because if we're going to be people who say yes or no to, should we be changing our bodies, are our bodies not important, then we should look to Scripture to what it says. And I think here is where we learn about that. So God forms a body in Adam. Adam doesn't make his own body. God doesn't... Um, just say like, oh shoot, I need to find a body for this person. He actually, when he makes a person, he makes a body and then breathes life into that body. It becomes the whole person. The soul, when spoke about, is the whole person. The body, the heart, and the mind, all these things put together. Sam Alberry says, um, it doesn't like he, it's not like he takes your soul and he has to find some random container to throw Adam's soul into. The body isn't a Tupperware container full of our true essence. And one day we throw that container out. Or one day we, or we say, I need a different container because uh, I'm, my soul is different. He, he breathes life into a body and they're united and they're one. They're together, they're connected. It, it, even this image is the opposite of... of uh, of death, if you think like in death you lose, you breathe your last breath, and then your body decays back into dust. And this is the creation of life, where he makes a body, and then puts breath into it, and it becomes life. This is really important because this means we should see our bodies as important, as essential, that we are embodied people born into a male and female body. In fact, after this, then he creates Eve, he breathes life into her, and gives her a different but similar important body. Von Roberts says, as God's creatures, we are not simply souls trapped in human bodies. He made us physical beings. We are embodied creatures. Or Sam Albury says, we're not just the outcome of God's activity. We are the product of God's intention. 
Do you hear the difference there? Outcome of his activity or the product of God's intention. So he's saying God wasn't like, I'm going to create this essence of this soul and then uh, like, oh shoot, I got to put it somewhere. I guess I'll put it in here. Like it was an afterthought. He's saying his intention was to make you, to make a body and breathe life into it and make one whole thing. And then it says, after this happens, in Genesis 2, 24 through 25, then um, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. They become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. So he makes, he makes people, he makes their bodies, he makes them a man and a woman, and then he brings them together. And in Genesis 2 at the end, we see in marriage, and it says, then they'll come together uh, and they become one flesh. We talked about this, if you want to listen to the, the week on, on marriage, to, comes together, and Adam and his wife were naked and they felt no shame. This is, felt no shame. This is where I really want us to, to land here too. This is another part of this. So he's made a, he's made a male and a female. He's breathed life into them. Their bodies are created by the creator. He's given them their genders. And he, and he said, hey, you have this great mission to care for, to, to cultivate, to steward the world, and to come together and create life because that will show an image, a picture that people will look to God and, and, and realize we have a God uh, and see who God is and want to worship him which, is, which will bring the ultimate joy and life and peace and all to us, right? The, the ultimate satisfaction. It says, And then when God did bring them together, they were naked, completely vulnerable, completely uh, open, right? Just to, they were just, <laughs> they were, uh, there was no shame. This is, this is so important to see this. At the end of Genesis 2, we hear, there was no shame, there was no discomfort, there was no disorder, there was no dysphoria. They were fully exposed, and it felt right. They were at home. There wasn't a sense of something's off. I, they weren't spending their time trying to figure out who they were. God had given them who they were, and there was no shame in that. There was no discomfort in that. They were home. It's really important if we start there. If we start after, if we start in Genesis 3, which we're about to get to, then then everything's broken, and then all we think, and then all we can see is like it's always been broken. We got to figure this out, but God had figured it out. He had created us in a way that was right, and there was no shame and no discomfort and no brokenness. But we know that changes. In just five verses, a lot of things change. We know this snake comes; it's Satan, and he deceives, and he says, "Is God really good? Does He really have your best? I, you should maybe." You, you could figure this out. You could be God. And so he says, you could be creator. And they say, okay. And he says, God, God has asked them to not uh, do something. And, and he says, you should do that. And so they eat from this tree. They turn from God. And then everything changes. It unravels. It unravels. And then in the image we've been thinking, it almost tangles back up. It says, there was no shame, and then just in five verses, uh, Adam and Eve turned from God, believed the lies of Satan, and then we hear in Genesis 3, 6, when the woman saw the fruit of the trees was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and ate it. 
Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Shame, tension, brokenness rush into the world. In just five verses, we go from no shame at home to now disorder, brokenness, shame, tension. Now all people are experiencing dysphoria. Maybe not in their gender. Some people are, are experiencing this deep pain in that, but some just through anxiety or depression or, or their body image or just sexual desires are all tangled up. We have broken bodies. We have disease. We have disorder in our bodies and illness now. Everything is falling apart. Bodies are being worshipped or dismissed as unimportant or unvaluable. We no longer feel home in our bodies. We start covering them up. We start taking actions to, to change our bodies when that wasn't how we were created. We cover up, we change ourselves. We cover who God, what God made, change what God has made. Being ashamed even of what God has made because of brokenness and sin and death now coming into the world. And so so I, I, we, I go here because I want us to go, this is how it was made. And then, and, and hopefully in that moment you even go, but that's, Drew, that's not how it is though. That's cool. That's great. I'm glad Adam was made by God in God's hands and then had God's breath breathe into him and he came to life to steward and care for. That sounds really great, but that's not my reality. It's not because of Genesis 3. And so then what do we do with that? We feel that tension, that discomfort, our reasons were dysphoria, and we all feel that in some way. All feel that brokenness. Specifically, people are feeling that in their gender. I'm, I was born and given a male body, but I don't, it feels broken. It's because of Genesis 3. So what do we do then with that? Do we, then when do we just start doing the work of covering ourselves and changing ourselves? Well, this is what really uh, a definition of sin. That we just are trying to find that deep satisfaction again, and we run to many things. We've, we've read this verse before in Mark 7. 20 through 23, Jesus says these words. He went on, What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it's from within, from out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. That evil comes. That looks like sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Our hearts so want to be satisfied because it's broken. We don't feel at home. And so we run to something. We give our hearts and our worship to something that is not our creator who made us, who can heal us and restore us and that we know one day we'll come back and make all things right. So we look to anything else and that often comes out in us doing things and looking like murder or adultery or greed, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander. There's lots of lists in scripture of sins. And it isn't a list to like, don't do those things. It's a list to say, this is what it looks like when our hearts run after things that aren't what they were made to run after. And one of the things that we see happening then is that we begin to change our bodies. Maybe even our names. 
in hopes that that will cause satisfaction, in hopes that it might even just relieve the pain of the brokenness that comes from the world. Vaughn Roberts says, we don't have to create ourselves. God has already done that. But by turning away from him, we have spoiled everything. It's true that religion, society, and traditional morality can be oppressive, but they're not the fundamental problem. The fundamental problem is sin, human rebellion against God, which has spoiled the whole created order, including ourselves. This is, I think this is really important here. When you're hearing about someone who's, who's experiencing gender dysphoria, it might be really easy to go, I have no idea what they're feeling. I have, how could they do that? Or, oh, that seems weird. That seems gross. Or, or you just feel like, oh, great, they're going to figure out how to be satisfied, good for them. Right? And, and all that, that whole spectrum, even our response in that, if we miss this part, what's coming out of our hearts, we miss our connection to every other human being in that I understand brokenness. I understand things not being right. Maybe not in this category, maybe not in this area that you are, but I get it. We have this opportunity to have this great connection and together point each other to the person we're supposed to all be pointing each other to, right? Because if we are people who just start trying to do heart surgery on ourselves to change our hearts by either changing our bodies or identifying differently or seeking after sexual desires or seeking after food or seeking after money or relationship or comfort or security in any of those, right? If we start doing that, that's only going to bring death. I love to show these uh, emojis of myself. There's this, I don't know why they create this emoji of someone pulling their heart out, doing their own heart surgery, right? If I did my own heart surgery, I've said this many times, I would die. We don't, God does that heart surgery. Or the image we've been looking at of a man taking a picture of a mound of dirt with the mountains behind him, right? There's, this is what this is. Us looking at this thing that we think is beautiful and wonderful. Oh, incredible. I'm not realizing right behind us. Turn around. This is what, this is what repenting looks like. Just turning around and running towards the mountains, to the beauty and the wonder of God who can change our hearts and satisfy us. I uh, worked uh, at a hotel in college, and I remember thinking of these tangled up wires. I remember our copy machine not working, and some businessmen really needed the copy machine. And the manager said, well, let's get it working for them. And we pushed the, the counter, the table aside, like this cabinet that the, that the copy machine was on, we pushed it aside, and behind it was just a tangled mess of cords. And I thought, if I even reach in there, I might get electrocuted. This, this, it, it, this is tough. I don't know what to do. And the manager just pushed the cabinet back and said, uh, sorry, the copy machine is broke. Did, we didn't even want to dive into this mess of tangled wires because we thought, oh, we're going to get hurt. And we'll just abandon it. Try something else. We'll just abandon this thing. Which I can feel... In myself, as I try to figure out how to fix brokenness, I try one thing, then I go the next thing, then I go the next thing. But here's some of that in Heather's story. If I try this thing, I try this thing, and then I don't, I don't even know. And, and for some, we just abandon that there's no hope and just live in that brokenness. And one of those ways, as we've said, is maybe changing ourselves. And we all do this, friends. We all do this. And we should be able to emphasize, emphasize, 
empathize, understand, like know their people on the planet because we know the gospel. And the gospel says a good God created us and he created us good, but we've turned from him and things are broken. And we go, that's what it is. It's not that I need to, I need to change everything to try to fix it. Everything's broken and we know that a good God comes to earth as Jesus and he fixes us, he heals us, and that one day it's not done. He's going to come back and make all things right. So we looked at the brokenness, this idea, in week three of our series. Um, and today it's we're looking at that, how that plays out specifically for a transgender person as they feel this deep brokenness. That there's, good ho- there's great news and good hope for them in this. In the same way, I think, as we thought about in our week where we talked about singleness, single people in our church can be a great gift to us because they live out God's sufficiency in their life. Not that that feels good or is necessarily something they're even asking for, but there are people in our church that have under, they understand and have learned how to be sufficient, it, that God is sufficient, and how to cling to him alone. And, and they are the ones who can say, hey, you're feeling, you might be married and you're feeling this, and you're feeling the brokenness, and you don't know where to turn, and they can say, it's true though, Christ is enough. And so in the same way, what if we were people who saw people in our church experiencing gender dysphoria, and we said, well, you have a gift. As you pursue Christ, and not pursue changing yourself, but you pursue Christ, and he will change you, wow, those are people that we could could hold on to and say, yeah, your, your faithfulness in Christ in this deep pain and this discomfort can inspire us, can encourage us, and together we can, can agree on brokenness and who fixes it. One of the stories that I heard uh, from someone experiencing this, so they shared some of this with their church, that they had been experiencing it, and they said, where's my place here? And they said to them, there's no place for you here. They said to the person, you're experiencing this? We don't, we don't know what to do with you. I'm sorry there's not a place for you here. I thought, oh my goodness. How hard would that be? How painful would that be? They said, I was try- I'm trying to learn how to follow Jesus. And they, don't, they said, we just don't know what to do with that. And so in the midst of that, the question was asked, well, then what would you have wanted them to say? When you said to them, is there a place for me here as someone who's experiencing gender dysphoria, and, and hoping that they would say, oh, just say this and this and everything would be great. And they said, I don't know what they could have said. I really just wanted them to weep with me. Do you hear that? Not, not give the right answer. Not necessarily in that moment affirm or not affirm this. They just said, I wanted to say, this has been really hard and I finally got the courage to share this painful thing, the brokenness in the world. And I wanted you to say, oh, that sounds really hard. And weep with me. How, how much do we all want to share brokenness and someone to not fix it or to say, oh, that sounds hard and walk away, but just go, sorry, and just weep with us. Just weep with us turn our worship to Jesus who can heal us. And that's where we have to go here. In Ephesians 2, we hear this great gospel story, this great gospel, this good news that comes to us 
So what do you do then? You're not supposed to change yourself. You're not supposed to identify differently. Then what does that look like? Like, then how is that supposed to change? Well, it changes the same as it changes in all of us. It changes our hearts. And how is our heart changed? Not because I'm doing heart surgery on myself, but because Christ does this. And because that love that I desire, those relationships I desire, the home that I'm looking for is created by a good God who loves us even in the midst of our brokenness and our running away. So Ephesians 2 says this. Ephesians 2 uh, verse 1 starts with this. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air and the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of you also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. Do you hear that? So we were dead because we were just following the desires of our flesh. And it says in verse 3, all of us had been doing this. Remember, all of us are in the same boat, running after the desires of our flesh, just following our own thoughts and our desires. Like the rest, we are by nature deserving of wrath, of, of death, because we're running from the one source of life. But what is that life? Who, the, that life, the source of love, the source of peace and joy. What does he do in verse 4 we hear? But even while you were doing that, running towards death, but because of his great love for us, because our God deeply loved us, our God who is rich in mercy made us alive in Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. And by grace you have been saved. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, and in order that the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not something you did. It's not from ourselves. It's a gift from God, not by works, so that you can boast. For God, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to good works, which God prepared for us to do. Jesus comes while we're broken, while we're not at home, while we've made some choices to turn from him, to try to create ourselves as, as a perfect, satisfied person. And he pulls us from death. He rescues us. And one day, he will literally resurrect our whole beings again, where we will be whole. He, this, is, this is for me the hard part. I get up and I go, okay, I'm following you, Jesus, but it still feels pretty broken. I still feel deep dissatisfaction some days. And then I have to remember, oh, because this isn't the end. He's coming back. And we hear a story of a God coming back. And not coming back and, and uh, sucking us up into clouds through some beam of light, right? Or us just floating around in space somewhere all glowing. He says he's going to come and heaven and earth are going to meet, and he's going to establish his kingdom again, and all things will be made right. There'll be no more deep dissatisfaction in us. Our bodies will be resurrected as his body was resurrected. Not because we felt brokenness and we fixed it, and he went, oh, okay, good job fixing it. But because we felt brokenness, and we turned to the one who fixes it. The one who fixes gives us his spirit to endure the days until he comes and makes things right. C.S. Lewis says, Christianity is almost the only one of the great religions 
which thoroughly approves of the body, which believes. Now think of how we think about the body and think about how our God has acted, which believes that the matter is good, that God himself once took on matter, human body, and that some kind of body is going to be given to us even in heaven and is going to be essential part of our happiness and beauty and our energy. You this God himself takes on a body and then that body is used to bear all of our sin, all of our disobedience, all of, all of that that we deserve death for all of that we've tried to create and do and our passions and our heart has run after that is not of Jesus. And Jesus takes all of that punishment for that on his own body and feels that on his body and his heart and his mind. He takes all of that weight on him and then he resurrects. His body doesn't stay dead his actual body raises from the grave. And that means one day our bodies and our hearts and our minds, our, our whole beings will also raise from the dead. John Wyatt's a uh, research scientist and author, he, uh, he says he pictures us and our lives as an art restoration project. Because in the Christian worldview, he says, we're not machines that just need to be fixed, were flawed masterpieces. Did you hear this at the end of Ephesians 2? In verse 10 it says, For we are God's handiwork, or masterpieces, because in Christ Jesus, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us. He has these masterpieces that are flawed, they're torn or faded, the paint's been off, we're missing part of the painting. Right, the... Some of the paint's been chipped or the sculpture is broken off an arm. The church is a museum of these beautiful works of art that that need restoration. Some more than others. But we aren't the restorers. We We aren't repainting and cleaning and adding and subtracting from the paintings. We aren't having to train ourselves and go to school for years and years to be expert restorers in restoring of people. We lean into the one who restores his people. We care for the artwork. We bring the artwork together so that the restorer can do the work. So that the artwork would stop being destroyed and stolen and sold, used. We ask the restorer to bring these works back to life. And he does. He brings them back to life. All this comes together even in this passage we've used over and over throughout our series in 1 Corinthians 6. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Who you receive from God? You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. This kind of sums it up, right? It says, hey, you should run from sexual immorality. Things that weren't created that you weren't created for. Anything outside of this idea of a, a man and a woman coming together because that's really just there to bear this image of who God is. Run from those things because those other things actually are sinning or hurting your own body. Don't you know that your bodies were given to you? They're actually a temple. They're like a holy place where God dwells. His spirit is in them. And did you don't forget, your, you don't have your bodies or your life or the breath that you have, or the heart or mind, because you did something, it's because you were bought that Christ gave his own body and raised from the dead 
paying for you so that you could have life. And then out of that, as masterpieces, we can do good works for God. That's our story. And, and I've been very encouraged by reading uh, Heather's story, back to her story that we started with. And I'd love for you to hear a little more of her story and how the gospel, this truth, came into her life and changed her life. Let's hear just a few minutes of, of how that changed her and how uh, the gospel has been working in her life and changing her, uh, her view and where her heart now has turned. So I ended up having top surgery in February of 2017, 2016. And I remember the first time that I looked down and saw my new chest, I just felt this sinking despair of, this is not what I wanted this to look like. This is not, this is not doing what it was supposed to do. Like I was hoping for soul level satisfaction and this is just surface level. Um, and I think so often for trans guys, the like top surgery is the thing that's gonna make all of your other problems go away. And for me, it just made me aware of how much deeper these problems were. And once the dust settled from socially transitioning, so everyone knew me as Jamie, I had done all of the steps and I had finally done all of the big, like big mile markers in transitioning, I realized like I didn't address the problem that was going on in my heart. God asked me to go to this women's conference from the ministry that I had been reading um, like reading info from and I was like again like oh that's crazy like this is a women's conference I'm a trans guy I'm not gonna bunk up with 12 women and have it be really awkward but he said to reach out to the women's ministry and I emailed them and I said hey I'm a trans guy um, I would love to come to your women's conference I feel like God is asking me to go like what do you say and they responded just so sweetly. They said, like, we would love to have you part of this, like, as Jamie. Um, we will give you your own room at no extra charge. Um, we will do whatever we can do to remove barriers and to reduce the white noise, because clearly God is doing something in your heart, and we want to make space for that. And I had no excuses not to go to this women's conference, just like I had no excuses to go to church. And I, the most impactful thing at that women's conference was a message called Your New Name. And the premise of it was that we receive names um, based off of our wounds. So mine were like defective femininity, hard to love, pain bringer. And in the response time after the message, the name that I got from God was Daddy's Girl. And that flipped that wound from my dad on its head. And I, I just, I think I cried for like three days. Um, like it was exactly what my heart needed to hear. Like all of the clothing, all of the names, all of the pronouns aside, like I was my daddy's girl and he delighted in me simply because I existed. Before I did anything, before I messed up, before I did any uh, anything that was good, he just delighted in me. And I knew in that moment that, okay, I'm supposed to go back to living as Heather, but I can't go back to that prescriptive femininity. And I never felt God prioritize my clothing or my um, hair or what anything that I, anything external, all of that was secondary to him. What I felt he was prioritizing was me understanding that the fact that I am a woman is defined by the fact that he calls me his daughter. Like my femininity resides in the fact that I'm my daddy's girl, nothing else. He didn't tell me to change what I was wearing. Like I still, still wore men's clothing for months after that, but it was a posture shift in my heart of I can begin to hear good things from God about myself as Heather, as this person that I hated, 
as this person that I tried to never have to interact with again. Like I could hear good things about her and I could begin to love her. Is that not incredible? Now I know this isn't the story for everyone. Not all people are going to have Heather's experience. Um, but did you see the steps that were taken that the Spirit was doing in her, but also in the people that she uh, ran into, the people that she was reaching out to and that even reached out to her? This is where I want to end. I just want us to consider. Now, what do we do with this as a church? If you're someone experiencing this gender dysphoria in your life, we love you. God loves you. We want to, to enter in uh, to relationship and know you and help you turn your heart to Jesus as we do with all of us. It's really all we do here is gather and remind ourselves of how good Jesus is, to put our identities in him. And if you're not someone experiencing that, what does it look like for you? What does it look like for all of us? And, I, and as I've been wrestling through this, hearing her story, hearing other stories, I've kind of come up with two things that, they have, that have really landed for me as I've been thinking about my motive, how I respond and my motive and my heart in all these things. And they are, is my heart to see people become family or is it to become strangers? People kind of come to us almost neutral. Like I guess they come as strangers, but don't want to continue to become strangers or really ensure that they're a stranger. Or do I want to say, hey, what if these people become part of the family of God? I'm not saying I want to find a way to you know, to make sure they marry someone in my family. I mean, the family of God. And so I think this might help us give you a little category for what does it look like to respond well here as we come to the end of this. And so I have been thinking about this because I've been thinking about things I do or say in my response, my initial response, specifically in the category of how I respond to those around me who are talking about transgenderism, those who are experiencing it, what is my first response? Is the first response a joke? Is the first response ignoring it? It is maybe a part of my heart want to say, oh, I'm glad I don't deal with that. That's weird. Maybe a response is to blame others. To say, oh, if it weren't for our schools or our TikTok or it weren't for this thing or that thing, these people wouldn't have this weird thing, right? Is that maybe your response? Or maybe your response is like, I just want to get out of this situation so I can not have to deal with the discomfort of people different than me. A friend recently said, I often feel a conviction that they're, they're ultimately sharing that I, I kind of want these people to stay as strangers, become strangers in my life. I feel this when I um, am talking about somebody or something and then I look around the room and realize someone in the room is is experiencing it and I stop talking. You ever had that where you, you say, you start telling maybe a joke or you start kind of, <laughs> this happens I think sometimes in our talk maybe about pronouns. I've been thinking a lot lately about this as I'm in a conversation. Someone starts making fun of people who are talking about their pronouns and then if someone different comes in the room they maybe stop. And you're like, oh that's weird, why did you stop? Oh because the real person's in the room now and you want to think differently about them. Think, what do we lead with? Are we leading with uh, a, a pulling in, a welcoming? How can we help this person become family? In the family of God, change because God changes them and they become a brother or sister. Or do we 
are we are we looking at ways to help them stay strangers so we don't have to deal with this or because we believe there's no hope for them the question is how do we proclaim the good news and what is your good news there's good news that there is a great plan for you all of us that God covers us he covers and heals that shame that the gospel can change all people and make us into more image bearers better image bearers of our God but he does that in us so that others can see the hope and joy and peace that comes from knowing Jesus. Just knowing people will be in very different places of awareness on their journey of this, giving space for people to understand or form opinions, time to wrestle, maybe even people to wrestle with. One person I talked to uh, said uh, what they're most encouraged by, this is a person who... Um, loves Jesus and is trying to pursue Christ and is feeling gender dysphoria, they said that the passages I'm most encouraged by, I was curious, like what, what in scripture has caused you to hold this strong conviction? To decide to stay celibate, to decide to stay, uh, to embrace the gender you were born with, that you were assigned, what, what does that look like? And they said the passages that, that I hold closely to are all the passages where, where we hear uh, Jesus and the writers of Scripture say we should love and care for widows and orphans, that this is like the greatest. In James 1, uh, I think 27, it says that this is like the great, the great ministry we can do, this great religion that is we can care for the widows and orphans. And I said, why is that? Because you're, you're not a widow, you're not an orphan. They said, because those are people who don't have family have lost their family, lost their parents or their, or their spouse. And culturally at that time, that would have meant you were like lower, seen as lower, less than in culture. Your value would have dropped or you would have had no value because you didn't have a husband or a parent. And they said, and Christ calls us to say, no, no, you have a family. Come in. What a word today, friends. And as we even end this series, what a word to think as we see people around us struggling, uh, as we see people experiencing and, and uh, trying to figure out and creating things so that we can figure out this gender and sex and identity thing, what an opportunity for us to say there is a family for you and a good God and a good Father who loves you. Uh, as we end here, I just want to read a passage that um, really is our mission from Matthew eleven twenty eight. This is our hope, right? That we bear this image and that, that we would call people to this in our family. It says, Jesus is talking and he says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. That's the truth, the good news of the gospel. People are seeking rest. I'm seeking rest. And there's one who will give us rest. A couple things to consider uh, just in a gospel response as we process here. Do you know Jesus, our creator and rescuer and restorer? Do you know that he created us for good things and he rescues us and he restores us? Maybe consider how does Jesus affect the way you use your body or think about your body? Have you, have you considered how the gospel actually affects how you use your body? Who are your closest gospel family members? We ask this question a lot, but... 
who are the people who help you and who are maybe the people right now even considering these are some really heavy, hard things to think about. Who are people you can just meet with and discuss and share and, and, and still love and care for each other as you try to pull the gospel through these topics? And what would it look like to welcome people into gospel family in your life? What does it look like to be someone who is trying to help people become family rather than become strangers? What's something that would do that in your life? Let me pray for us um, as we end here. Lord, thank you for your goodness, your kindness, that you made us with a purpose, that you restore us, that you've come to rescue us. As we feel the brokenness, the tension, the discomfort, the dissatisfaction around us, we would look to you that we would not try to create a solution ourselves or run to something else that we think will bring uh, the solution to that brokenness, but run to you and you alone, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who has created us and rescued us and gives us hope and gives us a future and one day will return and make all things right. That We would never forget those things. We could cling to you that we would not only love you well, but out of that overflow of that, we love others around us. Well, we thank you, Lord. You're good to us. Amen.